Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is co-host Cal Raustiala, and I'm really pleased to have as our guest on this episode uh, a friend, a colleague, and a former vice president of the American Society of International Law. So Ona Hathaway is a professor at Yale Law School and also served as a special counsel to the general counsel of the Department of Defense in the Obama administration. And we're going to talk today about evolving issues around the use of force and specifically the recent strikes uh, from the Biden administration on uh, Syrian territory uh, last week, I guess two weeks ago. We're we're recording this on March 7th. Uh, So Ona, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Cal. Yeah, it's great to have you on. You've been you've been on before, but we haven't had an extended conversation, so I'm really glad to to be able to do that. So, what I thought we could do is just begin with uh, some discussion of the legal rationales around these strikes, uh, and then pivot to both a discussion of what it means for the Biden administration, what we might expect of the Biden administration with regard to use of force, and also how we might see these issues evolving generally. Uh, in the international legal system. But let's start with the the basic rationales and and your assessment of them, if you're comfortable giving an assessment. Yeah, so we don't know a whole lot, I should say, is the first thing to note. Um, The administration, after the strikes took place, which they took place on uh, February 25th, and just to fill folks in, um, it was a strike on facilities in Syria that were operated by Iran-backed Shia militias. and initially, apparently, um, we've later uh, learned that there was plans to strike two facilities, um, but one of them was called off last minute because a woman and children were seen at the location. So they ended up just striking one facility. And these were um, facilities that are um, claimed to have been used by these Nazi actor groups, um, which are um, responsible for past attacks on um, U.S. forces and coalition forces in Iraq. So one thing to notice here is that the strike was in Syria, but the cause was a desire to defend forces, U.S. forces and coalition forces in Iraq. Um, so what was the legal basis? Basically, the legal de- basis was self-defense. Um, was it Article 51 self-defense? And in fact, the U.S. Um, appropriately filed an Article 51 letter, which is what's re- required whenever you act in self-defense um, with the U.N. stating that the acts were taken in self-defense. But we haven't seen an extended legal rationale. That's not unusual. It's it's actually unusual to provide an extended legal rationale. But one of the difficulties we all face in these situations is we don't know exactly what the legal reasoning was. We have this kind of baseline, it's self-defense, but um, but there's a lot of very difficult issues from there that we haven't received a lot of guidance from the administration on. Great, great. And so just to clarify on the, on the letter that um, I think Linda Thomas-Greenfield submitted to the Security Council, that's a requirement under Article 51 uh, of the UN Charter, if you are are claiming a self defense rationale, uh, exactly, exactly, yes, and and that has not always the U.S. hasn't always been perfect about following that. So I think the administration does deserve some credit for um, having filed that letter as well as a War Powers Report, which is required under domestic law um, after use of force, and they filed a War Powers Report with Congress that 
that had basically the same information, essentially, that the U.S. was acting in self-defense. And from the domestic perspective, the, the constitutional basis for this is claimed to be the president's inherent Article II powers or, or something else. It seems that the constitutional basis that's being asserted is an Article II um, right of the commander-in-chief to defend the United States against attack. So there's no reference in the War Powers letter um, to any statutory authority. So um, there's no reference, for instance, to the 2002 authorization for use of military force um, against Iraq. Um, and so it seems pretty clear that they're resting it on the president's commander in chief authority under, under Article 2 to defend the nation against threats. Well, I'm glad you raised the AUMF issue because we chatted a bit before we started recording about that and the fact that uh, there's been significant pressure for years, really, but but especially right now around those 2001 and 2002 authorizations, which are now you know almost 20 years old in the case of the first. Um, do you foresee a change in that, and do you support a change in that? Yeah, so a lot of the United States used a military force, nearly all of the U.S. used a military force in the Middle East, um, with rare exceptions, um, is under the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, which was passed a mere days after the 9-11 attacks on the United States. And then the other is the 2002 Authorization for Use of Military Force, which was passed when Saddam Hussein was in power in Iraq to authorize use of military force um, to address what was believed to be or was claimed to be a threat of weapons of mass destruction, um, which turned out not to be true. Now, those authorizations remain on the books. And the Obama administration was clear that it was not relying um, on the 2002 AOMF uh, for uh, much of its use of force and at one point essentially um, endorsed uh, its withdrawal. And now the Biden administration has come out and endorsed uh, the withdrawal or the, the repeal and replace of both of these AOMFs, both the 2001 and the 2002 authorizations, which, um, as you said, have been on the books now for nearly uh, 20 years and have really um, uh, been pushed to and far past their limits. Um, but we don't know exactly what they have in mind uh, as a replacement. And the devil's is, is in those details because it is extremely difficult to get in the agreement um, about what a replacement should look like. Yeah, it does seem like that would be a, a kind of a political hornet's nest in a lot of ways, but but also, as you say, long overdue. On the other hand, it sounds like they were not really essential to or viewed as legally essential for this strike and maybe not for the sorts of strikes that we might anticipate in the future. So I suppose it's possible they just would sort of, you know, fall into disuse in some way, at least in this administration. Is that is that something well, you would anticipate or? Yes and no. So yes, for the 2002 authorization for use of military force, um, it's not really um, uh, substantially a source of authority these days. It occasionally gets kind of thrown out there as a, as a sort of, um, and by the way, we also have this additional authority that might help, um, but it's very rarely resting entirely on the 2002 AUMF um, for any kind of uh, use of military force. 
The 2001 AOMF, however, does continue to be a pretty significant source of authority for all of the um, uh, operations against Al-Qaeda and associated forces. And the list of associated forces has grown significantly over the years. And there's a number of groups that we continue to use military force against um, under this authority. Now, a lot of people like me think this is really inappropriate because if you read the 2001 AOMF, and when I teach this, I put the actual text of the 2001 AOMF up there. It's very and great. I, and I asked my students, like, what does this say? Does this authorize war in Syria in 2014 and 2015? And they say, no, of course not. It, it, there's nothing in here that would possibly suggest that you could go to war against a group like ISIS that didn't exist um, in 2001, um, at the time the authorization was passed, but is used as a source of authority for military operations in Syria in 2014. So it's it's long past due, um, but it has not been a big priority for prior administrations because they basically can use it for any kind of, effectively any counterterrorism operations they want to gauge in in the Middle East. And um, and that's exactly why it's so problematic, because it's effectively been turned into this sort of unlimited blank check for any group that is named an associated force. But the limits on that seem to be pretty fluid. Um, and, and it is past time for that to change. It seems like part of the reason that it's it's so appealing to use it, obviously it's there in that kind of loaded gun way. But it also seems like part of the issue, and maybe this is a good way to pivot to some of the larger questions raised by these strikes, is that we know in, in the 21st century, there's so many non-state actor groups of various kinds that are mixing, evolving, splintering, causing harm in other states and across various territories. And international law has not, I think it's fair to say, been very clear on exactly what can be done about that. And so something like the AUMF becomes attractive, even though it may not have any particular meaning at the international level, but it, it grounds uh, it grounds attacks or, or or responses in some kind of legal framework. And so maybe it's worth taking a moment to talk about that more basic challenge uh, and whether these kinds of responses are legal as a general matter and what are the challenges associated with them. So, do you one aspect of that is 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 the unable and unwilling standard that the U.S. often uh, averts to. Uh, do you have a view on whether that standard is the right standard when there is such a group in a territory that seems unable to control it? Yeah, so this the reason for the unable and willing standard is a um, way to try, has, has been developed over the last, really, since 9-11, um, as a way of um, explaining a justification for using force against a non-state group in the territory of a sovereign state that is not consenting to that use of force. Um, so an example, again, is um, ISIS is pretty has been in the past quite active in Syria. Syria was not excited about having the United States use military force within its territory, so wouldn't consent to it. And the idea is, well, if you're either not able to deal with the threat yourself, um, that is, address the threat of ISIS, um, and you're unwilling or you're unwilling to address the threat, um, then we can take action even though you don't consent to it. And, and that has been a, a, a theory that has sort of been thrown out there by the United States. It's been embraced by a few of allies. 
Um, there's a you know, number of U.S. allies have embraced this theory as a kind of way of allowing them to use force against non-state actor groups in states that, that don't consent to it. Because of course, if they consented, then you don't need a just then you don't need a um, independent legal justification. Consent by itself is is sufficient. Um, the problem with this is we only have the views of a really small number of states about what uh, about whether they either think unable and willing is a good theory or they think it's a bad one. Um, there's there's maybe about 25 states that have sort of made explicit their views. Um, and there are well over 190 states out there. And so only a small sliver of the states um, that could express a view have expressed a view. And so, uh, as you well know, um, if we're talking about evolving customary international law and understanding of what custom permits, um, we, we really don't have enough clarity that this is an, a view that has been embraced by enough states that we can say that this is sort of an emerging customary norm. Moreover, to the extent that it's inconsistent with Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which would prohibition on use of force, and, and Article 51 of the UN Charter, which is a very narrow self-defense right, generally speaking, we don't think custom can trump a clear treaty obligation. Um, and so that's another problem, I think, for the un unwilling or unable theory. Nonetheless, the U.S. government treats it as if it is something they can take to the bank. Um, and so U.S. government has been comfortable with this theory um, and has operated under it um, uh, for quite some time now, um, even though it has pretty rickety foundations as a matter of international law. Can you expand on that a little bit in terms of how that's discussed internally to the degree you can talk about this, either from your time at DOD or just your general knowledge? Is the argument that it is, in fact, a rule of customary international law now or something different? How, how, is it, how is it really explained within the U.S. government? Yeah, um, well, the way in which it's explained within the U.S. government is essentially that it is a customary international norm. Um, I, it's also worth just pausing here for a moment to just talk about how the lawyering on these kinds of issues happen. And just so happens that you're uh, the journal of your home institution, UCLA, um, uh, published an article by me uh, just a couple months ago called National Security Lawyering, um, where I talk about the process of how these lawyering decisions get made. And part of what I argue there is that it's a very um, circular and internal process. There's a way in which there are ideas that get developed internally within this very small group of lawyers called the Lawyers Group. And that's the chief lawyers of each of the major um, national security um, agencies involved in national security matters. And it's not very penetrable from the outside, nor, is it, nor are ideas really fed in that much from the outside. And so once an idea takes hold within the lawyers group and it's, it's sort of seen as an acceptable argument, it doesn't matter necessarily all that much that international lawyers as a whole really dubious about the argument um, and think that, you know, there's not a really great basis for it, um, or at least that it's highly questionable. Once, once there's this kind of internal view about what is an appropriate way to proceed, um, they tend to run with it. Um, and Congress really has no way of pushing back on that, even if it had an interest in doing so. Um, and and that's, I think, a real problem with how the lawyering happens on these issues. So that's something I try to take on at some length 
Um, and I do think it's part of the reason we consistently see decisions being made by the U.S. government on national security matters that not, international lawyers are kind of left shaking their head um, and wondering, how can you really justify this as a matter of international law? And part of the answer is that it's a very um, um, exclusive internal discussion where it's not always clear that the views of international lawyers carry the day. It sounds like the utility of it is just so attractive as well that it's hard for these these members of the lawyers groups to really resist. And and just to clarify on the groups, so that would include DOD, state, DHS, CIA. Yeah, it's not actually not DHS, interestingly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely okay. sure why it's excluded, but it's not usually part of it. Um, it is DOD, state, um, OLC, um, Office of Legal Counsel from the Department of Justice. Um, CIA is a part of it. Um, Office of Director of National Intelligence, the um, lawyer, um, the, the uh, legal advisor for the National Security Council. Those are the key members. Oh, and the um, legal advisor for the Department of State, if I didn't mention that before. Um, so these are the key members. And whenever there's a um, sort of pressing issue like the president wants to bomb a Iran-supported non-state militia group facility in Syria, um, this group will convene um, usually alongside a meeting of the of the principals committee of the National Security Council or in advance of that meeting where it's going to be discussed by the principals who are in the NSC um, and a decision made or recommendation made to the president about whether, whether to proceed on, on the strike like that. And alongside, you'll have the lawyers group um, assessing the legality of it and basically making a recommendation to the um, to the legal advisor to the National Security Council, um, which then is conveyed to the NSC as to whether, you know, the agreement of the chief lawyers is this is okay or we have some concerns. Um, and yeah, and this, this process takes place whenever there's a kind of novel legal issue that arises or something that's sort of pressing like this um, where, where it's clear that there may be real legal concerns. So I'm fairly sure, at least this is how it worked under the Obama administration, I should say. Um, uh, it worked, the, I traced the history of it um, for uh, back to basically immediately after World War II. It didn't always work that way, but that that is how it has come to work over the course of the decades. It did break down a bit during the Trump administration, I should add. But my understanding is that things are back to normal or back to the way that it worked under the Obama administration under Biden. And so they would have had this kind of internal conversation and made a determination about whether to proceed. And you would have had all the lawyers of these agencies um, at least likely will have would have signed off on it. Occasionally there's there's non-consenting lawyers, but that's pretty unusual. Perfect. Perfect. So if we might compare what happened in late February to what happened about a year ago in the Soleimani strike, uh, bearing in mind that the Trump administration, as you say, maybe did have a bit of a lapse in how this process worked. Um, how would you compare, maybe not on process terms, but substantively, since we don't really know as much about what happened in the Trump years, uh, that strike to the strike of, of late February? Um, how do they compare in terms of the merits? And, and do you think that Biden, President Biden would have approved the Soleimani strike if it came up today? That's a really hard um, question to answer. Um, I, I think the big difference, um, well, there are many differences, but probably the biggest difference between the Soleimani strike and, 
And the strike that Biden ordered um, uh, in late February against these uh, Syrian uh, facilities is that Soleimani is a was a very high level Iranian government official, and so the chances that it would provoke a significant response from Iran was extremely high. Um, and and I think there was real fear that what we were doing was effectively launching a war or starting a war with Iran. And my contrast, these strikes were in the middle of the night on a facility operated by non-state actor groups, Iranian-backed, absolutely, but, but um, still not Iranian, uh, not a... a leading member of the government. Um, a really small number of people killed. I think one person killed a couple injured. So it just the, 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 the degree, the level of the possibility of escalation is much less. Um, so while there's definitely legal concerns in both cases, I think the Soleimani strike was a lot scarier, frankly, um, and a lot more troubling and a lot more dangerous. Um, it really had the potential to spiral way out of control. And I feel like we are very lucky that we did not come out of that with a much bigger response from Iran. Um, there was a response against the same airbase um, that, uh, that where there was a response from Nazi actor groups to this February 25th uh, strike. There was a rocket attack on uh, the, air, the same airbase um, in both cases. The response to the Soleimani strike was much bigger. Um, and ended up injuring um, uh, somewhere around 50 U.S. forces um, who suffered traumatic brain injuries. Um, uh, by contrast, this response um, did lead to the death of one person who uh, suffered a heart attack, not a U.S. service member, uh, but not directly, did not directly have an impact on, on anyone on the base. So, yeah, so that, to my mind, is the biggest difference, um, uh, and that's a really important difference. Uh, that 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 really had the uh, possibility of leading us down a very very dangerous road. This is much more in the nature of a kind of tit for tat. They hit us a little bit, we hit them a little bit. They hit us a little bit, we hit them a little bit. That's dangerous. That's not that's not good um, for the international legal order. Um, but it's not likely to lead to an all out war between two very powerful militaries. Right, right. Fantastic. So in, you know, in your response, you noted as I, I think is really significant and, and probably known to most listeners that the most recent strikes were against these non-state actors associated uh, in some ways with state actors, but but not directly a state actor like Soleimani himself. And I'm just curious about this issue of attribution that goes with that. And, and I thought I might ask you to compare the challenges, because I know you have an interest in, in cyber as well, and cyber threats and cyber conflict, where attribution is also a big issue. Do you see clarity emerging in international law on how we go about or what the standards are for attribution? And, and in both cases, it seems quite challenging to do that. It is challenging. Um, it, it, it is quite challenging. And I actually think that one place where international law could use a lot of development is in when and how we hold states responsible for the actions of non-state actors that are associated with them. Um, here, what's interesting is that the non-state actor groups that were named by the Department of Defense, at least, are groups that um, are Iranian-backed militias, but 
interestingly, as Ryan Goodman has written about um, in Just Security, um, uh, are actually have been in many cases incorporated into Iraqi armed forces. Um, And so there's a case to be made that these non-state actor groups that were attacked by U.S. forces in Syria, (laughs) and these non-state actor groups, again, are supported by Iran, are actually state organs of Iraq, uh, because Iraq has incorporated them into its own forces. And so we are attacking an Iranian-based group in Syria that is effectively a part of the government of Iraq, if that's all true. Um, which makes this even more complicated. Um, And so this is an area, honestly, where I think we need a lot more development. There are rules and there have been developing rules about around when and how states are responsible for the actions of non-state actors. But frankly, the rules are confusing. There are a couple of um, contrasting standards. One is called the effective control test. The other is called the overall control test. And they're applied somewhat differently and nobody can really agree which one matters the most or which one appropriately applies in which context. So if I was going to say like, what's an area of international law that we really should see some development in the next decade, this is an area I think it would be really valuable to see some moves forward. Great, great. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to stop. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about these issues. I have no doubt we will have to revisit some of these questions uh, in the uh, years to come, and hopefully we will be able to talk about them again. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Cal, for having me. I appreciate it.